we are a part of the web of life. So if we're damaging that web of life, we're damaging ourselves. Welcome to the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Purdy, integrative dietitian and nutrition educator. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the connection between the health of the environment and chronic inflammation, plus practical suggestions you can put into practice for your health. Joining us today is Dr. Rupa Maria, a physician and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where she practices and teaches internal medicine. Her research explores the intersection of society and illness, including how social structures may predispose various groups to certain conditions. She is a co-founder of the Do No Harm Coalition, a collective of health workers committed to addressing disease through structural change. She's also the executive director of the Deep Medicine Circle, whose work is healing the wounds of colonialism through food, medicine, restoration, story, and learning. And she is the co-author with Raj Patel of Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. And she's asked me to call her Rupa. So welcome, Rupa. So wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you, Mary. Happy to be here. So what first sparked your interest in the impact of environmental toxins or toxicants, as they're often called, on human health? Well, I just started paying attention as a young physician at UCSF where I trained, started to notice people coming in with inflammatory bowel disease from the Central Valley, asking people who were in their 20s who would have to have their colons resected because of inflammatory bowel disease what they were eating and what their lives were like. And then starting to notice, you know, young black people who lived in Bayview Hunters Point, who had no exposure to secondhand smoke, no history of smoking, coming in with very worn out lungs that looked like emphysema of a, you know, a long time smoker. So I started to see these things happening, young people coming in with bizarre anaplastic thyroid cancer from the Central Valley who never worked in the fields, but their parents worked as farm workers in the fields. And then knowing that with our system of immigration and the way most of our farm workers are undocumented and therefore not wanting to be counted or noticed by any official systems, I started to wonder how we were missing the human impact of things like our industrial food system. We were missing the toll that it's taking on people's bodies and then the earth. So simply just paying attention at the bedside and starting to ask questions because, you know, not only were we seeing diseases that we really shouldn't be seeing, but we're seeing them more frequently. It's almost like it started off as a little bit of detective work, asking those questions, trying to understand why these idiopathic diseases were coming into play and finding out that perhaps it was due to some of the industrial chemicals or toxicants that are out there. And can you actually shed some light about environmental toxicants? How would you describe those? How do you define them? And, and what are some examples? Well, the way that Raj and I in our book Inflame talk about environmental toxicants is through the lens of what we call the exposome, what's called the exposome, which is the sum of someone's lifetime exposures. And that can be anything in the environment from air pollution, from a factory down the street to the pesticide residues that are in the fields that farm workers are exposed to to you know, dietary chemicals that are in the foods that are more available in poor neighborhoods in the corner stores rather than whole foods or organic foods, to racist police violence in over-policed neighborhoods that tend to be brown and black, to the ice raids of immigration. All of these things create stress and damage in our bodies and in our cells. 
And what we look at in our book is that the body's you know, immune system's response to damage and the threat of damage, which is stress, is inflammation, is inflammatory, chronic inflammation. Yeah. And so what we're talking about here is more than just chemicals, more than just additives in your food or chemicals from the industrial food supply or pollution in the air. You're actually talking about other social determinants of health. You mentioned discrimination, uh, stress, other things that may happen that may impact someone's physiological functioning, not just because they're not eating a certain type of food or eating too much of a certain type of food, but because of their life circumstances. Right. And so that's why when you have patients going, I don't understand how I got cancer. I eat all organic. I do yoga. I meditate. And I just say, you know, we can't divide the sky. Our air is being polluted. Our water is polluted. You live in this place, say up in Marin, where, you know, the groundwater is impacted by the industrial farming of the vineyards up in Sonoma and the air in the region. So we can't actually isolate ourselves. We're not hermetically sealed off from each other. So even our individual lifestyle choices don't add up to much when you go outside of the individual and look around us and see how, you know, the sky, the water, the earth is something that we all share. So we have to get involved in banding together in radical solidarity, even though we might not be the farm workers who are impacted by those pesticides directly in the field. We have to understand that eating organically is not just good for our bodies, but for their bodies, because it'll cause a system shift. And so that's what we really emphasize in our book and what I'm very interested in. I definitely will counsel my patients to eat well and to diet and exercise, but that's not where we're going to see the biggest bang for our action. That's not where we're going to see the greatest outcome shift. Where we're going to see it is when we start changing the structures that are allowing people to be poisoned through environmental exposures such as these. Yeah. And I really appreciate that idea that it is not just things that are happening in isolation to one person. This is about connection to all beings, to all people who are experiencing these levels of injustice or contamination of their water, air, food supply. What should people be looking for? You mentioned right up front, oh, inflammatory bowel disease or issues with the thyroid. What are the implications of exposure to these chemicals or exposure to some of these life determinants or social determinants? What do people start to see in their bodies from a physiological, I guess, imbalance or dysfunction point of view? We're seeing early aging of our cells. Cells are being aged through damage. And when cells are aged through damage, through repeated exposures, multiple cumulative repeated exposures to these various toxicants, whether they're actual chemical toxicants or like I mentioned, stress level toxicants, that these accumulate in the body in our cells. And our cells that are aged prematurely through damage go on to stop dividing they go on to a premature aging, and then they shift their function to become pro-inflammatory mediating cells in all of our tissues, all our different tissues. So we see these kinds of pro-inflammatory cells in the blood vessels of people with atherosclerosis, in the kidneys, with people with chronic kidney disease, in the brain, with people with Alzheimer's, even depression, in the bodies of people with severe COVID. So any chronic inflammatory disease that we see as a result of the way our modern industrial society has been structured is being driven by the same process in the body, which is a process of damage. And so all the diseases that I treat, whether it's diabetes or heart disease or stroke or depression, substance use disorders, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's. Now we know these are all connected to air pollution, connected to whether or not you feel a sense of cultural continuance to your ancestry, whether or not you have a safe place to live. There's so many levels at which, you know, just focusing on diet and exercise is not going to fix 
the rising rates that we're seeing, which is of these diseases around the world. And you're talking about chronic inflammation, which sounds like that's the through line here. That is the the hallmark of so many of these diseases that is ultimately driven by exposure to chemicals, stress, all these other things that you're talking about. Can you break down chronic inflammation for us, for those of, uh, of our listeners out there who may want to have a little bit more insight into what actually happens in the body when exposed to some of these things? Yeah. So like I mentioned, these repeated exposures to damage and cumulative exposures to damaging signals set off the immune system to respond with the inflammatory response. So when you get a paper cut, that's an acute inflammatory response. These mediators in the body are activated to heal the paper cut. So the inflammatory response is a healing response. Once that wound is healed, the inflammatory response goes quiet. But when the damage keeps coming and coming and coming and never stops or adding and adding and adding, so you get a little from the air, you get a little from the water, you get a little from the debt you're carrying as a young student, you get a little from not having access to enough food or healthy food. So when that accumulates and it keeps coming, then the inflammatory response doesn't stop. The damage signals keep coming. And so the healing response becomes a damaging response. It does collateral damage in our system. And so that's where we start to see chronic inflammation in the breast tissue, which gives rise to breast cancer, in the colon, which gives rise to colon cancer. Cancer is an inflammatory disease, we now know. It arises in places of chronic inflammation in the body. And so that's why it's really critical that we, yes, do take care of diet, exercise, sleep, meditate, but you can't meditate your way out of a planet that's on fire. You can't meditate your way out of the poisoning of the Tennessee River Valley, that watershed. You have to stop that damage from happening. That's where we start to see the deep medicine, what Raj and I call deep medicine, which is understanding the political and historical structures that have allowed that kind of poisoning to continue. So that poor white people, brown and black people, indigenous people are suffering the greatest brunt of these diseases. But like I mentioned, even if you can afford to buy all organic, you could be the wealthiest person and still be carrying these diseases because we live in a world where we cannot actually physically, our biology is, we are a part of the web of life. So if we're damaging that web of life, we're damaging ourselves. Yeah. And it's amazing to think that this process that our body has naturally to defend itself, to repair is actually ignited and exacerbated and then perpetuated by the continuation of not just the poor quality diet or the poor quality exercise regimen, but this is really about a much, much deeper rooted issue and all these different contributing factors. And ultimately it sounds like this is about dismantling a system as opposed to just telling someone to eat more organic foods or to have some more olive oil. Right. And that's where I see those kinds of moves as being almost a form of medical gaslighting. So if you're telling someone, oh, we have the recipe for how to live with diabetes, you just have to do this. But that's not going to change why millions of people around the world are getting diabetes. They're not making bad choices. They're living in a world where it's going to be impossible to avoid diabetes because of this accumulation of damage in the body. You know, we're seeing now children who are exposed to COVID, even if they had a mild course of COVID, have a 77% increase in the risk of developing type 1 diabetes. These kinds of exposures, when they add up over time, are going to be creating a lot of challenges and suffering for a lot of people and already are. And so that's why, yes, I will do my time, you know, sitting with my 
community and my patients, teaching them how to cook some good food and giving access to healthy food grown without pesticides, grown through agroecology, agroecological practices. But ultimately, the work is at the level of policy, at the level of shifting so that everyone can have the opportunity to be healthy, including the animals in our communities. One of the things we're looking at at the farm we work at, Tequé Anatwarep, on the San Gregorio coast, is there's a lot of drought in California. There's low levels of water in our river. The farm is irrigated through the water in the creek and the river. So we're thinking, okay, let's bring back the beaver. Let's do this ecological restoration of the creek. Maybe we can harvest the fog, right? Maybe we can harvest the fog because there's so much fog there and it you know drips down with the redwood trees there along the coast, along that line. So we looked into developing some fog harvesting systems. There's a mountain lion that ranges through our farm And we pulled up a study that showed that mountain lions who are living in the coastal range and eating foods that have been watered through the fog have higher rates of mercury present in their whiskers. Hmm. So even those animals, right? So when we're talking about the poisoning of the world and that marine fog is coming from the ocean, it's coming right off the ocean. You just think about the impact to, you know, all these health systems are being impacted, including the animals. So you can't get out of it by just trying to become ingenious about harvesting fog or, you know, we have to actually stop the pollution. We have to stop these industries from creating so much havoc in our bodies. I'm Mary Purdy, and you're listening to the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast. We're on with physician and activist, Dr. Rupa Maria, discussing the connection between human health and the environment. Next, we'll dive into actionable steps that you can take to minimize your risk But first, a word from the sponsor of the podcast, Orgain. Orgain's products include meal replacement shakes, protein powders, and snack bars using only the highest quality ingredients to help people lead healthy, vibrant lives. Orgain's products are certified organic whenever possible, and all are soy-free, gluten-free, non-GMO, and free of artificial colors, flavors, and preservatives. To learn more, visit Orgain.com. Now let's get back to our conversation with Rupa. So Rupa, we've been talking a lot about the impact of environmental chemicals, stressors, discrimination, societal injustice on people, on people's health. I think folks out there also want to know, what can we do? How can we end some of this injustice out there? How do we improve people's health? So what are some steps that people can take that healthcare providers can begin to put into practice with their patients who may be struggling with these very issues? Yeah, so some of the things that are just no-brainers are identifying the sources of pollution in our immediate environments. And so if we live in a community, so I spend some of my time here in East Oakland, where this is where our home is, and there was a terrible smell that would come in every Thursday. And I'm like, what is this smell? It just does not smell right. So I started asking on social media, and pretty soon it was clear that it was coming from a foundry that was about four miles away. And it would waft over this way every Thursday. And I went down there and I could smell it there every single day. And then so I started reaching out to community members there. And there was a group, Communities for Better Environment, who've been trying to shut down this foundry for 10 years. Because people who live around that foundry live 10 years less than people who live up in my neighborhood. And they die of inflammatory disease. So heart attacks, strokes, these kinds of things. 
And so when I would talk with the people at the foundry, they're like, oh no, it's not us, that smell, it's probably the brakes of the train that comes by here. Or maybe it's that coffee roasting company, or maybe the smoke and mirrors from these people was hilarious. Then talking with the Bay Area Air Quality Management District who was green lighting their pollution, the California EPA who was so, oh, we can't do anything about this. The US EPA who says, we have no jurisdiction over this. The city of Oakland, the county of Alameda, at no point in the governance was there someone who was willing to shut this down or stop it. Then COVID hit. And then we saw the cumulative impact of COVID and air pollution. And what we saw in Alameda County is the people who were dying the most of COVID were the people who lived right around that zone. And so then more pressure, more pressure with doctors working together with the community that was already working to shut this down. And then now in the last few months, the attorney general in California sued them because it came out that they were spitting out hexavalent chromium, which is a carcinogen, into the air. So the health safety record assessment, which took over a year and a half to do, came out. And when I attended the public discussion of this, and you know, poor people were getting up to say, how do I avoid the impact of hexavalent chromium? The doctor from the Bay Area Air Quality Management District got up and said, well, you know, you should just sleep and diet and exercise. That's literally what she told them. So to me, this was horrific, but it showed that this is the mentality that we learn in medicine. Oh, you just sort of take care of yourself and, you know, good luck with the hexavalent chromium that's coming in through your window. And so what ended up happening was radical solidarity of people who lived in wealthy neighborhoods, working with people who lived in the poor neighborhoods, with physicians and policy people working together with the community who had been fighting this for 10 years. And that's how it got shut down. It's been shut down since June. So that is the way we do this, is we organize, we build bonds. So if you're eating organic because you like to feel good about the temple of your own body and your own self, take a moment to get out of that like individualistic perspective and start working with the farm workers in your community who are being exposed to these poisons every day. Work with them to get them clean water and a good place to live and clean access to jobs, jobs that will heal themselves and heal the earth. Start working in policy, start agitating and you know, showing up at county and state, places of public comment, get engaged, get organized. So that's how we do it. That's the only way to do it. I concur. Radical solidarity. I love that. That's an empowering phrase. And this is not just about telling someone to eat better food. This is really about creating a movement or joining a movement about getting involved in policy and systemic change, whether you are somebody who feels like you don't have a lot of rights or agency or whether you're somebody who's in a position of power. It's all voices on deck. All all hands on deck are needed here. You as a physician, what role do you feel like physicians, healthcare providers really have, whether it's about using their voice or educating the public, what can people actually do who are in a position of in the healthcare provider arena? We need to be sharing what we're seeing. And it's so hard because most of us are so tired and busy and like ground down, especially in the last few years. What are we seeing in the hospital? I just helped a 35-year-old person die of colon cancer. And this is like the fourth one this year. In the last few years, younger and younger people are dying of highly aggressive colon cancer. We need to share these stories. This is not normal. There is something wrong. Like raise the red flag, raise the alert. And of course you could say, okay, well, this needs to be studied. This needs to be documented. Yes. And then you need to be just saying, hey, folks in our community here in San Francisco, there's young people dying at 35 years old of colon cancer. What's going on? Using our voice to educate what we're seeing. We have this 
incredible privilege to be at the bedside and see how these social phenomenon are manifesting in people's bodies in real time. And before the studies happen, before these things can happen, we need to hear the anecdotes. We need to hear the stories. We need to hear the questions of doctors and, and nurses and other healthcare workers who are looking at this and going, something's not right. What's wrong? Something's not right. And that's where, you know, it starts to point the way to researchers. It starts to point the way to policy people that, that this isn't right. This isn't the way we want our children to live and our grandchildren to live. We can't be healthy in a world that's being polluted. Yeah. Sharing stories, really providing these anecdotal situations, being curious about what's happening. I remember from your book as well, which I have to say is amazing. And I feel like should be required reading for any healthcare provider out there and really for any person out there who cares about the world, which hopefully is everybody. But you mentioned the idea of asking questions of what it means to sit with somebody, a patient in front of you and not just dictate what they should do or provide a a prescription, although that can obviously be helpful in certain situations, but about getting to know that person. Will you talk a little bit more about that process and how that has helped you to understand patients better and give them better care? Yeah, one of the most profound questions you can ask somebody is tell me why you think you're sick. Tell me why you think you got here. Almost all of the time, people will tell you why they're sick. They'll sit and and they'll put the pieces together. Well, this is where I grew up or, you know, just start asking questions about what is their day like? What is their lives like? Where do they live? What is it like where they live? What have they had opportunities to do? What haven't they had opportunities to do. And through getting a broader, deeper, more whole understanding of the sum of exposures that somebody was, has lived through, not just in their lifetimes, but their ancestors' lifetimes, because these things accumulate intergenerationally, that you really start to get a sense of how what we're seeing now in the snapshot of this person is connected to a whole web of relationships around power what, you know, so many people haven't had opportunities to be healthy. And it really is structured along a power gradient, several power gradients. And that is kind of a health apartheid that we live with in this world. And especially in the United States, we see who gets sick and how they get sick. Powerful stuff. And this idea of asking questions is so key. Being with that patient, being present with that patient What about actual strategies for people who have perhaps been exposed or don't understand if they have been exposed to certain environmental toxicants or are dealing with issues of discrimination or things that are causing inflammation in their body? What are some active strategies they can take, whether this is diet, lifestyle, connecting with nature, doing a ritual to their ancestors? What are some of the the strategies that you offer to patients to try and help to quell some of that inflammation and resolve some of their health issues, if that's even possible? Well, some of these environmental toxicants, let's say coming from the food system, one of the things we do through the deep medicine circle is grow food through agroecology and just give it away so that people who, of the people we survey in our communities in San Francisco Bay area, 25% of people are food insecure right now. So hunger in itself is being malnourished, is predisposes us to chronic inflammatory disease. So getting people access without any barriers to healthy whole foods is critical. Showing people that this is not work you can actually do alone is really important. That, you know, people aren't alone in this and that to collectively grieve is really important. There's a grieving that has to happen because often people have been injured without their knowledge. And that is a terrible feeling. And then there is the organizing around 
changing those circumstances, which is ultimately, you know, how this stuff will change. So people cannot afford to move where they're at. And that is often the reality for people who are being exposed to these toxicants. We have to work on organizing together to stop that inflammation. This is where the place of solidarity is really, really important because folks who are living in, let's say, a white, wealthier neighborhood have a duty and responsibility to make sure the brown, poor neighborhood is not being exposed to heavy industrial chemicals, not just because of the impact on those people, but also because it impacts them. This is where the concept of Ubuntu from Africa, like I am because you are, like my health is actually here because you are healthy. And so once we start to care for the other, we actually receive care ourselves. That is a sentiment that has been systematically destroyed in the United States since the 1950s under the, you know, the red scare, oh, this is communism. This is what biology works under. This is the law of biology is that we are an interconnected system and that you cannot damage one part of the system and expect the other part to stay healthy. Once we start caring for the other, we will, ourselves will be nourished and healthy. Amen to that. And that is all part of that beautiful web that you've been describing. And I love this idea of Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U, I believe it is for those who want to look into that because it's such a beautiful concept. You've also been mentioning agroecological methods. And for those who are listening, who may not be as familiar with that, they may go, I know about regenerative agriculture or I know about organic agriculture. What's this agroecological stuff that you're talking about? Would you just shed a little bit of light on that for us briefly? Yeah, it's funny because we were just at the Rodale Institute giving a talk about agroecology and it made a lot of older, whiter, regenerative agricultural farmers really uncomfortable because agroecology is not just about regenerating the soil. It's about restoring our relationships that have been broken through colonial capitalist mindsets. And it's happening all over the world. And it has been happening since before the dawn of colonial capitalism, which is the system of extraction that has damaged ecosystems around the world. You can say colonization has always existed. And yes, it has. People have always been moving and colonizing other people. But never before has it existed on the scale to which it's damaged the entire world's ecosystem. Never before has it damaged this much wildlife, this much biodiversity. And it's because it's paired with an economic system of extraction, extraction of people's labors, land theft and disregard of ecological relationships that have been intact for thousands and thousands of years. So when those get disregarded, you get collapse of vital systems, of vital ecosystems. And so agroecology is not just the practices that you do with the soil, which you could think of as like regenerative agriculture, just looks, okay, we're just looking at the soil and soil health is human health. And it's very reductive. That's like a very Western framework. Let's be as reductive as we can and look at how these things go together. But agroecology zooms out and looks at the whole system. You know, why are we treating the soil that way is coming from a mentality. What is that mentality? How does that mentality dictate the way we treat women and the way we treat children, the way we treat elders? It inherently involves social and political discussions and understandings that how we practice caring for the earth is how we practice caring for each other. Those things aren't somehow distinct and separate. They come from a worldview. And so that is really what the practice of agroecology is, is bringing forward a worldview of care. Yeah. Thank you for shedding light on that, because I think a lot of people don't understand how it goes so many steps beyond regenerative agriculture and really brings this sense of, of equity and connection that goes very, very deep, deep medicine right there. Tell us a little bit more about 
the farm that you mentioned up front, you were talking, it's uh, the Tequé Atna Warep Farm in San Gregoria, California. You have a rooftop medicine farm and would love to know a little bit more about your work on those two farms. Yes, we are advancing a model of agriculture we call farming as medicine. And that work is, the first part is giving land back. So we're working to move land back at the Tequé Atna Warep Farm to indigenous Ramatush community. Those are the original people of the San Francisco Bay Area. The group we're working with is the Muchiate Indigenous Land Trust. They're doing beautiful cultural revitalization work. Kata Gomes is the elder there who is working on language revitalization, cultural revitalization, but it really is land back and reasserting indigenous perspectives around land and food in the place where we live. The second part is reasserting farmers as health stewards. So they steward our health, not just in how they care for us by growing healthy food, but they steward our health through how they manage the soil and the water. So by manage these things with ecological principles, they're generating more biodiversity, more nutrient dense food. They're climate adapting our foods so that as the droughts get harder, we're prepared with our food security. So our farmers are paid area median income wages. They are offered full benefits and like a healthcare worker. The third part is that we decommodify food. So we remove food out of the capitalist system and we give it away. And when food is given away, we can re-enter the sacred relationship as food as medicine, which is not like, oh, you have diabetes, let me prescribe this bell pepper, which is again, a reductive way of thinking about food as medicine. It's that these are ancient relationships that humans have had with plant entities that have kept us healthy for thousands and thousands of years. And it is the capitalist system of agriculture that has damaged those critical relationships. So let's throw that out and focus in on how to get universal basic nutrition for everybody, how to make sure everybody has enough healthy food to eat, not just food, not food bank. Like let's take the dregs of conventional agriculture and corporate agriculture to make everyone feel happier about eliminating food waste. But a system of health that starts with the earth and practices Ubuntu. We will be healthy because the earth is healthy. We will be healthy because our community is healthy. That is what farming as medicine is. The Tikwe at Nawarak farm is 38 acres. We put only the first acre and a quarter into production this year because we're getting up the water systems and making sure we don't take too much from the creek because the creek has coho salmon and steelhead in it. So our work is really balancing the, again, taking care of them so they can take care of us. And then the rooftop medicine farm is an acre of production space. It's the largest rooftop farm in the West. And we have produced, we just counted 26,000 pounds of food in our first three months of growing. So we are definitely super excited about what we were able to offer to our community. And it's a wide variety of diverse foods that they have requested for us to grow. How amazing. That sounds empowering for the farmers, for the people who are getting the food, who have access to this beautiful food that maybe they requested as opposed to something that was handed out to them. And and that in, in itself is healing as well. We've talked about a lot. Rupa today. And I would imagine listeners are, maybe some brains are exploding out there and people are going, wow, this is not the way I I have thought of healthcare. This is not the way I have thought of food or farming as medicine. If someone wants to begin with something, with something simple, whether they are a consumer, a food consumer, a, a citizen of the earth or a healthcare provider, what's one thing that they can start putting into play today, this week, this month that you think 
can begin to make a difference along these lines? I think starting to agitate in their local cities and counties for food, for universal basic nutrition for everybody, and not just any food, but nutritious food, and not just any nutritious food, but food that was grown without harming the earth, and not any kind of farm, but farms that are practicing social justice. So where Black, Brown, Indigenous people, or people who've been historically harmed through land, are getting access to land and getting access to good paying jobs. So in 2025, we'll release the Farming as Medicine Toolkit to share with everyone how we did what we did and the impacts. But really, we need to start moving policy in our local counties and cities so that everyone can have access to healthy foods. Imagine if farmers, imagine if farmers were paid to take care of the earth and feed the people. Imagine if that's what, like we pay bus drivers to drive buses, our cities do. Our cities need to pay farmers in our communities, around our communities, give them access to land and then pay them just to grow food, to give away to our communities for free through agroecological practices that will sink more carbon, heal the soil, take care of us in, in so many ways. So that's you know the future. That's what I see and that's what we're working for. So anyone who wants to get involved, let's Let's do this together. Let's do this by spreading this idea throughout our communities. Amazing. And, and how do people get in touch with you? Where can we find you? Our website is deepmedicinecircle.org. We are on Instagram at Deep Medicine Circle. They can check out our book, Inflamed, and, and just read some of the science that really inspired us to launch this work. Yeah, that's where you can find us. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for this incredibly enriching conversation, inspiring, empowering, educational conversation. And it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for Rupa for taking care of us so that we can take care of ourselves and our communities. Thank you. And this concludes season two of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned for season three, which kicks off in January of 2023 with an exciting lineup of subject matter experts speaking on a variety of health and nutrition focused topics. To stay up to date on the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next year.